0: The day of final judgment is coming. We can be certain of that truth. Some people are willingly ignorant, as we saw in the passage in 2 Peter this morning, they're willingly ignorant of the truth of God's long-suffering. And they argue. That there is no God. And that all things continue now. As they always have. Since the beginning of the creation. They challenge the idea of a worldwide flood. And interpret the world in the light of their skepticism. About anything supernatural. But as Peter said. It is. A willing ignorance they know that God will judge sin they know that this life is not all there is they know that they must stand before God and give account of themselves so they present arguments for their goodness They try to establish their own righteousness. But the truth is, you have to live somewhere forever. As soon as the breath departs from your body, you will be either in heaven with Christ or in hell. The God who overwhelmed the world in the great flood of Noah's day as we Considered this morning and who overthrew the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in the vengeance of fire and brimstone, Peter said, knows how to reserve the ungodly unto the day of perdition and judgment. Many mistake the long suffering of God for the weakness of God. But God... Is not weak. And God will judge sins. No one will escape on the basis of the efforts of the flesh. How then shall anyone be saved? Beyond that, how shall those who have professed faith in Christ have the assurance that they shall escape the day of wrath and judgment? Those questions are the ones that Paul addressed in the words of our text in Romans 5 and 9. Romans 5 deals with the experience of each child of God. It is a passage that emphasizes theology. That's good. Because the knowledge of God is the ground of confidence. We don't find confidence in ourselves. We find it in knowing who God is and what God has done. The trials of life lead us to base our happiness not on what we see around us because the Lord has told us that what we see around us can easily be gone. A strong wind can throw anyone's situation into turmoil. But when we look to Calvary, we see the evidence of the love of God for sinners. We see that Christ died for the ungodly, as we considered last Lord's Day. We are in that group. Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. When we come to the words of our text this evening, we find forward movement in the language. From the reality of the demonstration of the love of God for sinners in verse 8, and we will come back to that text in connection with the Lord's Supper next Lord's Day. But when we come from that text, we come in verse 9 to the application of God. Calvary to our individual and collective experience. So here we find the consequence of verse 8. So it's a little awkward, we're taking things a little out of order, but I trust that you will be able to keep the words of verse 8 in mind. The truth in verse 8 is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. For us. That truth becomes the foundation for the subject of assurance. And here is the area in which the devil preys on your unbelief and fears. You may wonder how you could possibly be saved, how you could possibly escape The wrath of God. When you have done things so much worse. In your view. Than other believers have done. As far as you know. But this verse takes us not. To the shifting sands. Of human endeavor. But to the solid rock. Of Christ's work. There is in this text. A present and a future aspect. So there's a present reality. That is linked to the promised future so that the present reality, which is true, leads us to the conclusion that the promised future is also true. God's salvation encompasses us in the present and the future. And we could make the argument it has encompassed us in the past as well because God would not allow us to fall victim to violence or to disease and to death before he brought us to faith in Christ. This text deals with justification. Let us hear the message of God's word this evening that draws our attention to justification's enduring power. Justification's enduring power. To know that you are saved now, and that you will never be lost, is the most precious knowledge that you can have. You may know that you are due to inherit a large fortune. If that's the case with you, please uh, let me have a talk with you afterward this evening. You may know that. You may know that you're about to receive an expensive gift you may know that your children will rise up and call you blessed. But the greatest truth for you to know is that you are saved now from the curse of your sin and that you will be saved from the wrath of God that will fall on unrepentant sinners at the last day. So the question is, have you believed on Christ? Have you rested in the sufficiency of his blood that he shed on Calvary for sinners? If so, the text has a consolation for you. You have solid confidence. And if you're still facing the wrath of God against you on account of your sins, then this is the day of salvation. This is the accepted time. It's interesting to think of Paul's words here in the context of people who heard Paul preach, but who turned away their ears from hearing the truth of justification, of pardon for sin. We find it an amazing thing. But many people who heard Paul preach are in hell. They would not accept his message. They confirmed themselves in their own efforts to save themselves. Well, today we come to consider justification's enduring power. And I want us to notice three aspects of our text this evening. First of all, the declaration of righteousness. The declaration of righteousness. By the use of a striking comparative at the beginning of the text, the apostle conveys the compelling truth. Having said in verse 8, But God commendeth his love toward us, In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a historic fact. Paul is reasserting it in that text. That death of Christ was the demonstration of God's love of his commendation for us. And no one can alter that fact. That is a historic fact. It's certain. But when we come to the beginning of verse 9, we come to the expression, much more than. Much more than. So here is a progression in argument. So here is this truth. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than. If that was a historic fact, Paul is emphasizing here, this is an even more compelling fact. The words of verse 8 are certain. Then the truth of verse 9 is even more certain. So consider the objective foundation for your hope. And as many times as I've emphasized it, I would emphasize it again, that Christianity is not a wish-so religion, it is a no-so religion. It has objective foundations. We're not trusting in something that we have invented. Salvation is a certainty. Paul emphasized it with the statement of a present reality in our text being now justified by his blood. When I was preparing to enter seminary, this was a text that one of the initial students in the seminary often quoted. And it has been in my mind ever since that time, justified by His blood. And notice the word now, now. We saw a reference to that in verse 1 of this chapter, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's the now. Last week, when we were considering chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Those who have trusted in Christ are justified by His blood now. That is, God has dealt with their sins. He has declared them to be just. He hasn't made them just that his justification has nothing to do with how you conduct yourself it has to do with your standing before God it means that those whom God has justified have God's pardon for sin they have his forgiveness of sin and I submit to you this is probably the greatest area of justification that Christian people struggle with because the devil is clever. He gets you to think that when you commit sin, that therefore you must not be among the justified because they surely don't behave in that way. But what Paul is teaching here is that God's pardon for sin is on the ground not of what you do or fail to do, but on the blood of Jesus. Here's the heart of Christianity. Here's the very core of the gospel. So if you deny the blood of Jesus as being absolutely vital to salvation, then you don't have the gospel. We have emphasized throughout this church's history the centrality of the blood of Christ. If you de-emphasize that message, then you don't have a message worth proclaiming to sinners. There's no redemption apart from Christ's blood. Let us turn to Hebrews. And we come again now to Hebrews chapter 9, to which we referred In a previous message in this series, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. That is, Jesus had to die in a particular way. He had to die in a way in which his blood would be shed or there would be no forgiveness of sins. And the blood of Jesus, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 1, is the blood of a spotless and sinless person. It has then infinite value more precious than the most precious commodity in the world it's the blood of a sacrifice a substitutionary sacrifice it is blood that Jesus shed in your place and in your behalf we read in the scriptures that Christ suffered for sins the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. That is, he stood in the place of sinners and bore the full penalty that they owed. All of it. All of it. Not leaving his people to sort out some, by some acts of penance the rest. He bore the full penalty. That they owe. So what Jesus. Went to Calvary to do. He did. He accomplished it. And there he secured. The salvation of his people. Let us turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And verse 13. But now, notice again another one of those now statements, but now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. He was speaking to the Gentiles here. They were without hope. They were without God. But in Christ Jesus they have been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. Christ having broken down the middle wall of partition between the Gentiles and the Jews. Reconciling in verse 16 both unto God in one body by the cross. Having slain the enmity thereby. Here is the salvation of all his people. So the blood of Christ is the ground of pardon. And that blood accomplishes its purpose. Those for whom Jesus suffered and bled and died are the ones he came to redeem. They're his people. They're the ones whom God the Father purposed from all eternity to give to Christ and to justify them. We can look again in chapter 8, verse 29, verses 29 and 30, what I've often called, and it's not original with me, the five links in the chain of grace, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed, to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover whom he did predestinate. Them he also called. And whom he called. Listen. Them he also justified. And whom he justified. Them he also glorified. Here are the people that Christ came to redeem. This pardon then arises from the favor of God towards sinners. God declares righteousness. It's not a result of anything in sinners. It is pardon on the basis of grace through faith in the sacrifice of the cross. And Can I emphasize that this declaration of righteousness is that justification does not leave anything untouched. When you are justified, God has declared you to be accepted in the person of Christ. There is nothing more to be said. That is a transaction that is accomplished. The devil may rage against you all he likes, and he does despise those who are justified. But he cannot touch them. He cannot do anything about that declaration of righteousness. Because this declaration of righteousness is the result of God's imputing your guilt to Christ. Think of the guilt of all your sins just in your own life. All of that piled up. God has imputed all of that to Christ and all the sins and the guilt of every other person in Christ's people. He's imputed their guilt to Christ and He has imputed Christ's righteousness, His obedience to you. That is legally reckoning that you are righteous and obedient to God's law. The declaration of righteousness, of justification, leads us to another comforting truth in the text. The publication of peace. The publication of peace as we saw in the first verse of chapter five you have the matter put very directly in the present tense we have peace with God here's a statement God has published about present reality peace with God is what we have now now in other senses when we speak about the peace of God that we also find in the scriptures that is a different matter and that may have to do with our subjective experience but peace with God is an objective truth we may not always live in the enjoyment of that reality but our unbelief does not alter that reality the grounds of enmity between us and God have dissolved that is, the hostility, is over. Christ has opened for us the way into God's acceptance. The state of war has ended. Here is good news. For God has published the news of the restoration of friendship. When God created Adam... At the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God and Adam were friends. When sin came, there was the breaking of that friendship. But through the work of Christ, the second Adam, there is the restoration of that friendship. So what we have in our text is not like so many publications of peace in the world. You know, you hear about ceasefires and peace agreements and all of that. But in many cases, the combatants continue to view each other with suspicion. Just waiting for the other side to do something to break the peace. But here is the announcement of a true friendship. Let us turn to the Gospel of John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 14. Ye are my friends, Jesus said, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. A wonderful statement of our Lord Jesus. Ye are my friends. We know something of the appeal of friendship. But to have Christ declare to his disciples, ye are my friends. That is heartwarming. Abraham, we read in the scriptures, was the friend of God. And God is the friend of all of his people. And the value of that friendship is that God will stop at nothing in defense of that friendship. He's not going to leave his friends dangling in the wind. He has already shown the reality of that friendship through the sacrifice of Calvary. Every time you wonder whether God loves you, and the devil loves to play this game with the Lord's people, how could God love you when X has happened? Every time you wonder whether God loves you, go back to the cross. Go back to the sacrifice of Calvary because on the cross is the demonstration of God's love it's the publication that God is at peace with you the war is over there's no more enmity there is reconciliation and friendship and then the third aspect of the text the demonstration of deliverance the demonstration of deliverance for this text takes us into the future. No, it's not a time machine, but it takes us into the future. It takes us to the day of judgment. We are saved, Paul said in this text, from wrath now. And we shall be saved from wrath then, but only through Him. Let us look at a couple references in Paul's letter, first letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come, to wait for his Son from heaven. And what do we read about his Son? He delivered us. That's a past tense. In the Greek language, there is a tense that stresses the historic fact That happened at a point in time. He delivered us. How did he do that? By his sinless life. And his death upon the cross. He delivered us. He is the one for whom we are waiting. Chapter 5 of the same epistle. And verse 9. For God hath not appointed us. Speaking of himself and the Thessalonian believers. He hath not appointed us to wrath. But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we don't have to wonder about this wrath of which we read here. We can find out about it in back in Romans and chapter 1 and verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. This is the wrath of God that is revealed. By the way, that wrath of God has been revealed in the world today. It It is active in the world today. God's wrath is being poured out in the world today. This wrath of God of which we read in Romans 1, is his settled opposition to sin. And when you think of all the wickedness that prevails at the highest levels of government today, God is opposed to it. He didn't decide lately to be opposed to it. It is his very being that is opposed to it. So he's not complacent in the face of efforts to institutionalize perversion. He is not complacent in the face of same-gender marriage or the folly of transgenderism. God's not complacent. He is opposed to it. God is not complacent in the face of the systematic slaughter of the unborn. He is opposed to it. And his wrath is poured out against it. So God is against wickedness. And his opposition to wickedness is the expression of his person. He would not be God if he did not oppose that which is evil. But the work of Christ is that he is the Savior of his people from this wrath that is poured out. So the text is emphatic that you have to be in Christ to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Much more than being now justified by his blood, being declared righteous, for the sake of Christ's righteousness. Imputed to you. And received by faith alone. Much more then. We sh- you shall be saved from wrath. Through him. So the deliverance is only through Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. And As. Many people seek for other ways. The authority of our text tells us there is no other way. There's no deliverance from the wrath of God except through Christ. And that is not Christ under some other name or in some other function in some other religion. It is through the Christ who is revealed in the scriptures. That is where the deliverance Justification's enduring power, it deals with your situation now, so that you now have acceptance with God, now. And it will be your preserver then, on the day of Christ's appearing. We're waiting for his Son from heaven, Paul said, To the Thessalonians were waiting for his son from heaven. And if the Thessalonians and Paul were waiting for the son from heaven in the days of the first century. Certainly we should be waiting for his son. Expecting his son to appear. Occupying until he comes. But we look for him to come. He is the one who delivers us. And I trust this evening that as you think upon the words of this text, you will find great confidence in your own soul. That this is all God's doing. God has justified you through the blood of his son. And God will save you from the wrath of God in the day of judgment. So the world around you may be going pell-mell down the broad road to destruction. But you know the truth. And you know that when that day comes, you will be among those whom Christ will say, Those are my people. I have saved them. I have made them accepted before the throne of God. And they will now be delivered from the wrath that is to come. May God bless his word to our hearts tonight. And give us grace and confidence in that word for Jesus' sake.